We know today will be a blessing to your soul, and um, we know God will meet with us here in a moment with the teaching of his word. Today we're going to talk about the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't know if there's anything better to talk about than the good news of Jesus, and that's really the content today that we're going to speak about. I told you we've been speaking about some foundations here at Crossroads Church, uh, because I began just a little while ago. And I want to start on the right foot. I want to start by building the proper way. And the best way to do that is to make sure the foundations are firmly planted uh, before we go any further. So I know they have been. This is is not a reflection on anything that's been done in the past. Of course, it's just to make sure we're all on the same page going forward. Before we get to the gospel of Jesus Christ, though, did you ever have anything in your life that you believe it would be hard to do without? Consider that question for a moment. Think about what things or people would be on that list that it would be hard to live without those things. Well, I'm going to give you a list of, of mine because I like to do a little icebreaker. I like for you to get to know your pastor a little bit and some of these are a little embarrassing, but that's okay. <laughs> things I don't want to live without. It doesn't mean I can't live without, okay? That's a different question. But I don't want to live without these things and I came up with a list. Number one, indoor plumbing. <laughs> I don't want to. Could I? Maybe. But I don't want to for obvious reasons. Um, plumbing is one of those things we probably take for granted, but when you don't have it in the short term, which some of us have had to, you're thankful when it comes back on. So thank you, indoor plumbing. Here's another one, air conditioning and fans. Anyone else like air conditioning and fans? Yeah, I'm generally a very hot person, and I know what you're thinking. I don't mean it that way, although, although thank you for the compliment. I get hot easily. I don't know what it is. I, I, I think it's because my internal body is 98.6 degrees, and that's hot. And so I, I, mean, I find myself always warm. Even in, the, even in the winter, I sleep with a fan on my face. Anyone else do that? Is that weird? Thank you, Cheryl. Yes. <laughs> fan right on the face in the winter. Uh, I'm just so thankful for air conditioning fans that keep me cool during the year. Here's another thing I don't want to live without. GPS. I think GPS was actually invented for me. It should be called TGPS, Todd's Global Positioning System or whatever it's called, because I'm really bad with directions. I don't know if there's anything in your life that no matter how good or how hard you try, you're just really bad at it. Directions are that thing for me. No matter how hard I try, I just don't have a sense of directions. So it'll take me about 15 to 20 times of going to the same place before I don't have to use the GPS. And uh, like I've been going to this transfer station here in Littleton, it's right up the road. The GPS comes on because I don't trust myself. I'll take an early turn or end up in someone's neighborhood and uh, dump my trash on someone's... That's not a good idea. Uh, Here's another one I'm thankful for. This one should be obvious at the top of the list. It's my wife and my kids. I I don't want to live without my wife and my kids for obvious reasons. I cherish my wife. I love my kids. But when you're a pastor, you do a lot of stuff alone. You, You study alone. You know, sometimes you'll have gripes from people. And a lot of time you wrestle with the devil. So when you come home, you need a cheerleading squad. And that's what it is for me when I come home. I have seven kids going on eight, so when I get home, I'm a rock star. Daddy's home, I come get a hug. You know, I could do no wrong for those first five minutes. And I'm thankful for my wife and kids. Here's another thing that I don't want to live without, and you'll laugh at me for this, and you might make fun of me for this, but I don't care. It's my Blackberry. Now, some of you haven't even seen one of these. You're actually too young to even know what that is, but it's a phone with a keyboard. And some of you think I'm behind the curve. I think I'm ahead of the curve. Because this, this thing has a keyboard on it, a physical keyboard. And we now live in the, in the era of life where we type all the time, right? We are sending out emails and texts and direct messages. And my wife said the other day, and this proves that I'm right, she said she was trying to type the word POUR, P-O-U-R, on her Samsung with her screen. And it took her 20 times to type the word POUR. And I smirked a little bit, a little half smirk, and I said, Janine, I could type it with one try because I have a physical keyboard. So I don't want to live without my BlackBerry. Here's another thing that maybe you guys, some of you guys use, memory foam. Anyone else like memory foam? Cheryl, we're connecting. I'm glad. I'm glad you're right in front of me today because I'm going to direct all my attention to there. Memory foam is one of those things. Once I discovered it, I can't move away from it. We have a memory foam mattress. I have memory foam in my shoes. I want memory foam everywhere. I want it in my desk. I want it in my chair. I, I, I want it. Is there a chance, David, to get a memory foam pulpit? That wouldn't be good for pounding, so let's not do it that way. Uh, but I'm thankful for memory foam. Here's three things that I'm thankful for that I didn't realize until I moved to the North Country. Snow. Now, 
When I was looking at Littleton for a possible destination, I was told that you guys get snow up here. It was in the brochure. And I'm holding every single one of you accountable for the lack of snow that we have. And I don't know, maybe it's my fault. I came and I like the cold and there's no snow. I don't know what it is. And so I, how do you mean that? You're right, I am hot. Um, but where's the snow? I want all of you to think about the, your life choices, okay, of bringing me up here because you promised me snow and there's no snow. And when we do get snow, it's like, you know, just a dusting. Just, that's what they keep telling me. Just wait next week, the week after. There's going to be nine feet of it. Um, here's another thing I'm thankful for that I didn't realize I needed and now I can't do without it. It's mountains. I need mountains in my life. Anyone else? You can't leave the mountains. Yes, thank you. I told Janine, now that I have mountains around me, I can't go anywhere else. I used to live in Iowa. If anyone's been to the Midwest, it kind of looks like what Sodom and Gomorrah probably looked like <laughs> after the fire fell from the sky. It's a miserable place. Don't go to the Midwest. I need to be around mountains. So the only place that I can move now, it's very hard now. If I ever move from Littleton, I can only go to the Rockies, Sioux, or to the Swiss Alps. I can't go anywhere else because I have to have mountains. And here's another thing that I'm thankful for, or that I, I don't want to live without. Invisible moose. Uh, invisible moose. I, again, I was told there was moose up here along with the snow, and there's neither. So you all, you're all liars. Um, but I'm thankful even for the invisible moose, because it's kind of like a legend, right? It's kind of like Sasquatch, or the abominable snowman, or, or uh, the Loch Ness Monster. And I'm thankful for that legend. And Roger told me the other day he's going to help me go find moose. He says he knows where they are. And really what he means is he's going to take me near the woods and he's going to say, hey, look, there's something moving behind the tree and he'll, he'll claim it's a moose and really it's a squirrel. <laughs> but I'll be thankful for the invisible moose legend that keeps going on. And so... Pastor Todd, you can, take a, you can pay to take a tour and they, they guarantee 99% that you'll see a few moose. So, wait, wait, wait. Guarantee, what was that next part? Like 99%. See, that's not guarantee. <laughs> guarantee is 100% of your money back. I would find that 1%. I'd be, that, I'd be that guy going, sorry, there's no snow, no, no moose. Sorry, you came on a bad day. Anyways, there's one thing that I, am, I, am, I can't live without, and this one is serious, and this one's going to transition us into our lesson today, and that is hope. Eternal hope. I hope you amen to that, because I can't live without hope. In fact, I don't know how the world lives without eternal hope. We're going to talk about that hope today as we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to write on the screen a little bit here today. Uh, because I like visual learning, and I hope a lot of you like visual learning. We're going to do a little bit of that today. We're going to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how important it is. And this one, I'm going to be honest, is a little serious today, okay? There's not going to be a lot of humor in this one. It's very serious, very important. But I'm thankful to speak about this, because as Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So we're going to talk about the gospel today. And the gospel has a very simple outline. Aren't you thankful for simple outlines? I believe the Lord did this on purpose because he wanted even children to be able to receive the gospel. He did not complicate the gospel. There is a very simple outline that I can see all the way through scripture. Whether you come to Ephesians or Romans or anywhere in the Bible that talks about the gospel, you will see this very basic outline. You have the problem, you have the good news, and then you have the therefore. What do we do based on that good news? And I'm going to be honest today. I would love to skip number one. I would. I would love to make friends in this audience, have you guys on my good side, and, and pastors like to talk about the fuzzy things, the soft things, the, the things that make everybody smile and happy, and I'd love to just skip on right by that problem. But I can't. I can't, and I won't. Because God did not skip it in my life. And it's the reason I'm standing here today. It actually is. God told me about the problem. And unless he told me about the problem, this would not shine. If I didn't know about the problem, the gospel of Jesus Christ wouldn't be anything to me. And now today I stand upon it because that problem was so grave in my life. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. So all of these things make sense. For this to shine, we need to know the problem. For the good news, we need to know so that we can do something about it. And that's the simple outline of the gospel, and we're going to talk about that today. So we'll start with a problem. Now, I had a pastor friend that, when I started in ministry, told me this is what he did when he talked to people, okay? 
When he had to share a bit of tricky news or bad news or a problem with somebody, he called it a compliment sandwich. Anyone ever heard of that phrase? A compliment sandwich. Anyone ever use that strategy? So basically, here's how it goes. You bring someone into your office and you tell them something good about them. And then you tell them the problem and then you finish with something else good about them. And he said they used that technique and that technique was pretty effective for him. Well, I'm not going to use the compliment sandwich today because God doesn't use the compliment sandwich. He's not here to, to placate us. He's here to simply tell us the truth of the gospel. And I believe if we do this correctly today, even the problem will be a gift of love. I really believe that because it was in my life. As I see it, there are three perspectives with our spiritual status before God, okay? Three perspectives that I can see that most people fall under one of these three perspectives. Okay, now we're not talking about atheists today, okay? People that say there is no God. That's a whole nother bowl of, bowl of crazy that we're not going to be able to deal with today. But for most people, most sane people who say there obviously is a God, he created the world, here are the three perspectives that we fall under. Okay, number one is this. People who say, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. Sure, I've done some things I'm not proud of. Sure, I've fallen short to some degree. I've made a few errors. I'm not perfect. Basically, what they're doing is they're taking the spectrum of mankind, okay? And they're putting themselves somewhere along that spectrum. And they're looking at the very evil people over here, the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Osama bin Ladens and the murderers and the rapists and people who hurt children. And they're basically saying, well, I'm not that. In fact, I'm far from that, so I'm probably over here somewhere in the 90 percentile. So if it was a test score, I'd be getting a 90 or a 95 or something like that. And then God on Judgment Day would simply round up. He'd go, listen, here's what evil looks like. Here's what you are. You got a 90, you got an A. That's good enough to get into my kingdom. So they're not perfect. The problem with people who claim this is they don't need a Savior, do they? They're good enough. They're moral on their own, and they don't need a savior. That's perspective number one, and I see a lot of these people in my course of ministry. Here's number two. These people say, I'm badly off. I'm badly off. I have a lot of sin in my life. I've done a lot of bad things in my life that I'm not proud of. I have characteristics, I have themes, I have patterns of a sinner. And uh, I need to do something about it. So therefore, my strategy is to reform myself. I simply am going to go to church more or read my Bible more. I'm going to stop those addictive behaviors that I have. I'm going to start working on being kinder to people. And basically what they're saying is I'm going to reform myself. I am badly off, but if I change some disciplines in my life, I can get better. These people also do not see their need for a Savior, do they? And there's a third group. There's people who listen to the Word of God. And they say, before God, without Jesus Christ, spiritually, I am dead. And I'm going to put my name there. Because I was dead. And I had to realize that problem. Before I could receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, I had to realize that I was not less than perfect. I was not badly off. I was dead. And where do we find this language? We find it from the word of God. Because in matters of this kind of thing, you need to let the word of God have the final say, correct? We're going to go to a passage in Ephesians 2, and I want you to listen to the very clear, very blunt language from God. And this is how he starts. In Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead. He doesn't say you were less than perfect. He doesn't say you were badly off. He says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Do you notice that? Dead. There's no mincing words, is there? When someone is dead, they are dead. They are flatlined. They are without life at all. And that's how we are before God without Jesus. We are dead in our sins. And now, this is an interesting phrase because Paul says you're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Is that a contradiction? Dead but walking? Dead man walking. Dead man walking. Maybe you guys have seen the show The Walking Dead. What we're basically dealing with here is not a contradiction, it's, it's a complexity. There are people who are spiritually dead, but physically alive. They're walking, they're moving about, they're, some of us are even, some of these people might even be amongst us today, sitting in church services. 
physically alive, physically able to reason and to live and to function and to have families. But they're spiritually dead in their sins, in their trespasses. They're walking in sins. And they're thinking they're okay. When in all reality, God says they're dead in their sins. And what he's going to do for the rest of this passage is he's going to describe what these dead people are like so that we know what spiritually dead looks like. So let's change the color here of our little writing tool because now he's going to say this is what dead looks like. Okay, he's going he's gonna to describe the deadness of spiritual souls. He says, number one, following the course of this world. Now, when I first read that, it sounds very benign. It's like, yeah, exactly. Go the speed of traffic, right? When, when anyone driving, you kind of gauge your speed limit based on how everyone else is driving that day. And if they're going 75, you go 75. If they're going 60, you try to stay around 60. And so if a cop pulls you over and says, hey, you're going too fast, you're like, well, I was going the speed of traffic. To which he would probably say, that's still breaking the law. Yeah. So when you look at that, you go, well, that's, that's not a big deal. But you have to understand, the world is not going a good direction, are they? They're headed towards more and more darkness and sin. In fact, for some reason in the last five or ten years, it seems like people are now picking up their pace, running the wrong direction. There's further darkness being embraced, further perversions being embraced. People are now not only content to do things we have once done, but now are inventing new ways to sin. And they're going the wrong way. And so Paul says, you used to follow the course of this world. You used to go the wrong way. So that's the first description of someone who is spiritually dead. The next description is a little bit more bleak. Following the prince of the power of the air. Well, who is that? You see this word prince, you might think, well, is he talking about someone physical? Prince Harry? No, we're not following Prince Harry. Maybe some of you are following Prince Harry. Um, he's not talking about a physical prince. How do we know that? Because he describes this. He says the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And someone already said it. Who is he speaking about? He's speaking about the devil. He's speaking about Satan. He says, not only are you following the course of this world, who is clearly going the wrong way spiritually, but you're following the devil. And the devil is doing the exact polar opposite of what God wants us to do. He's living for sin and evil and things that hurt people. And not only were we following the course of this world, we were actually following the devil. In fact, if you read 1 John it says our father was the devil. We were listening to him. We were following his direction. He was taking us the absolute opposite way. And this is Paul describing what spiritually dead looks like. This is what we were or are. And then he says this, among whom we all once lived. Do you notice that? It's all inclusive. Everyone is involved, including myself. No one gets out of this. Every single person who's le ever lived besides our Lord Jesus Christ is in this category of people, among whom we all once lived. 100% of mankind starts off spiritually dead in the eyes of God. Now, you might not think that, and you might not agree with that, but in the eyes of God, you're dead. And that's the problem that we start with today. He goes on to continue to describe this deadness, and he says living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. That might, again, not sound too bad. It's like, yeah, I, so what? I do what's natural. You know, it's organic. But if you think about that, and if any of you have had children, you know what this is like. As soon as you have a child, that child learns very quickly how to sin, right? If, they have, if someone has a toy that they want, they simply take it from them. If someone does something mean, they simply shove them to the ground. Right? And, and so you go, yeah, yeah, that, that's what kids do. Well, adults are pretty good at this, too. You ever see adults fight each other? That's a silly thing when adults fight. Like, I'm watching these sports games, and all of a sudden they're fighting. I'm like, you realize millions of people are watching this right now, and you're acting like my toddlers act. But it's not just, it's not just fighting and, and being selfish. It's honestly very evil. If you carry out the desires of the body and mind, whatever your body and mind tell you to do, you do. So if you want something, you steal it. If you want to get better, more 
more greater things than life, you cheat to get it. If you want a different spouse, you take her. Whatever your body and your mind tell you to do, you do, because that's your God. Not God. Your body and your mind are your God. And that's what Paul says spiritually dead people look like. And if things weren't even bleak enough, Paul is going to go one more level that will really cement this even further. He says, and we were by nature children of wrath. Now that might be a whole nother level of deadness and depravity when we reach children of wrath. And again, like the rest of mankind. This is everybody. So we have these two things that we learn that we're about. The word wrath means, I found this on the internet, strong, vengeful anger or indignation. Did you know God has that? Did you know God has wrath as a part of his nature? Strong, vengeful anger or indignation. Now, thankfully, our God, we're taught in the scripture, is slow to anger. He does not do that quickly. But God does have wrath, and one day that wrath will be revealed upon those who are in their sins. He will have strong, vengeful anger or indignation. So here in Ephesians 2, we find out the problem. The problem is that we're dead, which is bad. But again, maybe, maybe you're thinking dead is a part of life. You know, it's the circle of life. Sure, I would love to have lived longer spiritually, but if, if God says that I'm dead, then so be it. I'm dead spiritually, but I'm still functioning physically. Things maybe aren't all that grim. But then when he says the phrase, children of wrath, this is what takes the problem to the absolute worst position imaginable. Because not only are we dead spiritually and can do nothing to serve our God without Jesus, we are headed for true, true trouble. And I, there's a bunch of passages that I can pick from the Word of God to illustrate this. And again, I want you to know this is not the point. This is only point one. Okay, There are two more points following. This is not the point of the message today. We are not going to end on this. But I decided to pick a passage, the exact passage that God used in my life as a 26-year-old man. When I was following the course of this world, when I was following the prince of the power of the air, when I was following the desires of the body and mind, God came to my soul at age 26 and gave me this exact passage of Scripture. And so I thought, as I'm giving this gospel out today, this should be the exact passage that I use to illustrate this idea of wrath. And it's uncomfortable. I'm going to be honest with you. This is an uncomfortable passage. I don't think this is anyone's life's passage. I really don't. I've never seen this hanging in someone's home. Okay? Usually it's Jeremiah, you know, 29-11 or... John 3.16, no one has Revelation 6, 14 to 17 hanging in their home for a good reason. Um, but I want you to see it from Scripture. I did not change the language of this. And I want you to see what this wrath looks like because this is a prophecy. You guys know what prophecies are, right? It is a bit of news that God tells people that one day will take place, actually. And in the Old Testament, there were all kinds of prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Obadiah, Hosea. And what they did is they took the word of God and they gave it to the people of God. Basically saying, listen up, because this is what it's going to look like in the near future. Well, in Revelation, John the Apostle, one of Jesus' inner circle, is getting a prophecy. And he's taking that prophecy and he's simply communicating it to us. Whatever he sees, he's writing down so that we will know what the end is going to look like. And this is what he says. And again, referring to the end. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Can you imagine that? You ever wonder, waking up, if the sky is going to be there? Has anyone ever had that thought? Now, sometimes you do that about the sun, going, is it going to be a sunny day or a cloudy day? But I don't remember ever waking up going, boy, what if the sky's out there today? Maybe I should look. But one day, the sky, we're told, is going to be rolled up like a scroll. And this one's going to make sense to us because we live around these. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. I want you to picture that. One day, and it'll be a phenomenal day. It'll be both a day of marvel and a day of tragedy. It'll be both. It'll be a day of joy and it'll be a day of terror, depending on who you are. 
But one day the sky is going to disappear. It's going to be rolled up like a scroll. It's going to vanish right before our eyes. And these mountains that are around us right now, we're told are going to be removed from their place like you do, would do with a play and a stage and a set. You would take the mountains and you'd store them away and take them off the set. That's what's going to happen to these mountains that are all around us. One day they will be gone. Now again, you're not terrified yet. It's going, okay, that's, that's wow, that's cool, that's crazy. I can't believe that's actually going to happen. But that doesn't scare me yet. And then John, the apostle, says this. Then the kings of the earth, the mighty people, the great ones, the mighty people, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone who remains at that time in their sins, slave and free, regardless of who you are, how much you had, how rich you were, how famous you were, everyone hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And this is the part that really captured me at age 26. They are calling to the mountains and rocks to do them a favor. And this is what they say. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Now, if you're like me, you've seen many depictions of our Lord Jesus Christ in Hollywood, right? Movies, TV shows, there's a popular one out now that I haven't seen yet. But a lot of depictions of Jesus, and you'll, you'll see these depictions, and Jesus is always, you know, fair skin, flowing locks, always has a smile, always kind, always generous, always meek. And that's the Jesus that I had planted in my mind for 20-some years. And then I came to Revelation at age 26, and this is the first time I ever saw Jesus from another angle. Now it's the end. The day of salvation is gone. The window has closed. And now Jesus turns from Savior into judge. And those who are realizing this for the first time are terrified because now they're realizing that it's real and it's truth. And they may have suppressed it, they may have disagreed with it, they may have not believed it up until that point. And now when the sky evaporates and the mountains are taken from their place, they're realizing it's real. And they're going to have to stand before this judge, before this throne. And they're so terrified by this prospect. They're begging the mountains to fall on top of them and to crush them. Because the alternative is so much worse. Standing before a holy God in your sins. Now there I am at age 26. Professing to be a Christian, but walking in all kinds of patterns of sin. And that is the day that God said to me, Todd, this is where you're headed. If this continues, that's you. That was a terrifying day, guys. That was a terrifying day. I actually trembled reading that. And I wanted to shut it, but I couldn't. It's like a car accident. You can't look away. I just kept looking at these words going, what if I was among those, those people? What if I was amongst that group of people? Asking the mountains to fall on top of me, to hide me from the wrath of the Lamb of God. Who's the Lamb of God? It's Jesus. And now he's the judge. And now everything is going to be known. Everything is going to be seen. All the secret deeds, all the private thoughts. And it's going to be judged, not according to mankind. What's the standard? The righteousness of God is the standard. And you're not going to get a 90% when you're compared to the righteousness of God, are you? And this is where we begin today. If that is you one day, if, and that's the whole point of today, so that it's not, that would be utterly hopeless. And I told you, I cannot live without hope. And I hope you can't either. To know that you are in a state of people that one day will beg for the mountains to crush them so that you don't have to face Jesus the judge. That would be utterly, utterly hopeless. I can't imagine a more hopeless scene than that. 
And even the mountains, if you keep reading, the mountains will flee from those people because even the mountains don't want to be associated with sinners. But we're not going to end there today, right? If we put a period there, that's the most depressing thing you've ever heard, and I'm guessing you're not coming back. Um, but thankfully, the Word of God does not put a period there, does he? There's a comma. And that's a beautiful comma. Because right behind that terrifying, bleak, horrible, hopeless concept is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you guys remember the, the movie A Christmas Carol, right? A Christmas Carol, anyone like that movie? Yeah. Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, the only reason that movie is, is good and we, we enjoy that movie is because of the change in Ebenezer Scrooge. If that movie starts halfway through and you never understand how much of a miser and a wretch Ebenezer Scrooge is, then the ending doesn't make any sense and it doesn't, it's not glorified. And that's kind of where we're going today because right after things are really utterly hopeless, this is what it says in Ephesians 2, some of the most beautiful words ever written. But God. Boy, aren't you thankful for those words? Aren't you thankful that there's not a period at the end of dead in your sins, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is the withholding of punishment that you deserve for your sin. That's what mercy is. And God is rich in that mercy. And he's also rich in something else because of the great love with which he has loved us. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you have any idea how much God loves his creation? Do you have any concept of that love? Now, we know God's love, but we only know the tip of the iceberg because it's so vast. It's so deep. It's so broad. To explore the love of God, you will need an eternity to do so. And I believe that's why we have an eternity to do so because that's how long it's going to take to explore the love of God. Because Paul says, even when we were dead, and there's that word again, he didn't wait for us to clean us up or reform ourselves or get back on course. No, it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. What did God do? Made us alive together with who? Where's Christ today? He's in heaven on his throne. When things were the most hopeless they could possibly be, God's mercy and love was sent to us through Jesus while we were dead so that you and I could be made alive together with Christ. Now, awe at that passage, guys. That is an amazing, glorious gospel passage. And Paul goes on, he says, by grace, and this is talking to people who have been saved, who are Christians. He's writing to a church He's not writing to the masses, okay? He's writing to everyone who has trusted in Jesus. He says, by grace you have been saved. And I have to ask the question of you today. Have you been saved? Are you saved? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you realized that you're dead in your sins and that you're awaiting God's wrath and that there's only one Savior? And we're going to come back to that. But I can't assume that you have been because Paul is writing to a church and even though I'm speaking to a church today, I know there's... Amongst us, possibly someone here who has not trusted in Christ. So the question has to be asked, have you believed? But if you have believed, he says, you've been raised up with him, Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you notice what happened there? We went from enemies of God, and that's what happens on the last day. Those people who are facing the wrath of the Lamb are enemies of God. We went from enemies of God with one act, with one single act of mercy, to seated at his banquet table. We went from dead in our sins, awaiting the wrath of God, to now there is a place at God's banquet table with our name on it, where only the best friends of God get to sit. And that's what happens when that mercy came to us. We went from enemies to beloved. Just like that. And he's going to seat us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that at the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. One day we're going to glorify in the fact that we're there. And we don't know how. We know our sins. We know what we have done. But God's mercy and God's love came to us. It saved us. It healed us. 
It restored our relationship with God, and now we're in the kingdom of God with Jesus. And where do we direct all our praise and all our glory and all our boasting? We boast in God alone. Only God could do that. Only the Lord Jesus Christ could do that. By grace you have been saved through faith in Jesus. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works or reforming yourself so that no one may boast. Except in who? In the Savior. Because it's a gift of God. It's something we receive. And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time here. And Paul goes on to say, and we're going to get back to this one day because that's an important verse as well. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Even though we can't be saved by reforming ourselves, we are saved to one day do good works, and we'll get back to that one day. But we're going to talk about this gift. Because when we were drowning in our sins, when we were dying in our sins, and I want you to picture that. There's a lot of illustrations here today, but I want you to picture yourself in the open water, the open sea. Maybe you've seen documentaries and movies where that happens. Someone's in the open water, and there's no boats. There's no life vests. There's no friends. There's no land. It's just you in the open water, and you're going under. Right at that moment, a hand reached down. And I don't know if you could see that there, but there's a little cross. And that cross allows God to reach down into our hopeless state and pull us out from that hopeless state and give us the gift of salvation and reconciliation and righteousness. And it's all to God's glory. So we come to these beautiful gospel verses. One in Romans 6.23 says this, and be grateful there's no period there. For the wages of sin is death. But another, a glorious comma. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death to eternal life. And who do we owe the credit to? Jesus. From death and wrath to life and immortality and inheritance and glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Making Jesus Christ, which we talked about during the Christmas season, the best gift mankind could ever receive, bar none. Jesus is the present given to mankind from God. If he could give you anything, there's nothing that can compare with his son. Nothing. Not a thing. So whatever you want on your, on your list of items that God could give you, a greater job, a greater marriage, more money, happier family, Jesus Christ is at the top of every list. Because what he's given you is something remarkable. He's given you hope. Hope beyond the grave. Hope that one day you don't have to face the wrath of God. You don't have to be in your sins. You can one day stand confidently at the throne of God because Jesus Christ has paid for all your sins. Jesus paid it all. Another gospel passage that I love comes from 2 Corinthians 5. Paul writing again, he says, listen to this glorious transaction. For our sake, he, God, made him Jesus to be sin." Who knew no sin? Do you notice that? The person that had never committed one sin, one evil act, one selfish thought, in a moment on the cross became sin. So that, here's our therefore, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that is a marvelous gospel truth, and I want to illustrate that for you also. And uh, I took a picture of the little bulletin board out in our foyer that has a few pictures of a few of us, and I know even that's outdated. I know not all of you are on there, and one day we will work on that. Um, but I took a picture of that because I wanted to show this transaction with a picture. Okay, now we take all the sins of all of us, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, and we put them on Jesus. David, you're not in the circle. I heard that. But you're still in there. <laughs> David's trying to wiggle out of this one. David, you don't want to wiggle out of this one because of what I'm about to show you. But if you notice this, all of our sin that we've ever committed goes on to Jesus in a, in a moment, on the cross. All of our sin gets thrown on to the Lamb of God, the spotless, blemish-free Lamb of God. And in a moment, he goes from blemish-free to encompassing all of our sin. And guess what happens? The wrath of God. 
comes upon Jesus that should have come upon us. But that's not just what happened. According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, his perfect, blemish-free, spotless righteousness of always doing the will of God, of always seeking the betterment of his neighbor, of always glorifying God in every action of his life, pure, pure righteousness goes to all of us. It's the most beautiful transaction that's ever taken place. Jesus takes our sin and we get his righteousness. And it's because of that that we will walk confidently into the kingdom of God one day. Not because of our own, but because we wear the robes, the pure robes of Jesus. And we're going to end on this today, therefore. Based on the problem and based on the good news, what do we do with that? And if you know the word therefore, here I found a few synonyms for the word therefore. Uh, for that reason, consequently, so, as a result, hence, thus, what do we do? What do we do with that news, guys? What do we do with the news that we were utterly hopeless, headed for the wrath of God, dead in our sins, and now we can have eternal hope, free forgiveness, free righteousness in Jesus? And we come back to a passage we looked at last week. This is Jesus himself speaking in Matthew 13. It's the shortest parable in the word of God, and it's one of the most powerful things I've ever read. Because Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And we talked about why he covered it up. He doesn't want to let it slip through his grasp. And then what does he do? He does something unbelievable. In his joy, do you notice this? He goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Why? Because that field has the kingdom of heaven in it. Now, I want to be clear. We cannot buy the kingdom of heaven. We cannot buy Jesus Christ. We cannot buy salvation. But Jesus is not being very literal here. He's being figurative in the sense that once you find Jesus Christ, you find the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man discovers this treasure hidden in a field, he comes to one obvious conclusion. In his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Now, what is that equivalency for us? When Jesus had the first disciples, he said this phrase to them. And you have to remember this scene. These guys are out fishing trying to get fish. That was their profession. They have these boats with these nets on the side. And Jesus comes and says, what does he say? He doesn't give them this long discourse. He says, follow me. And they don't know much about Jesus point, at that point, but they know enough to drop their nets, to leave their professions, to leave their dad, and follow Jesus. And I'm guessing it's to, to some reason something had dawned upon them that this man is like treasure hidden in a field. And when this person says, follow me, I follow him. No matter the cost, no matter the timing, when Jesus says, follow me, I drop everything and I do it because I just found treasure hidden in a field. And that's what happened to the first disciples. For the rest of their lives, they followed Jesus, and it was not easy at all. But they sold everything they have. They gave up everything they had to follow this Jesus because he was the ticket to free forgiveness, righteousness, and the kingdom of God. And last week we talked about this illustration of climbing a mountain. And we decided to pick a mountain that's a little tall, uh, Mount Everest. And um, we said last week that coming to base camp of Mount Everest is not the point, is it? Although that would, that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool pictures to get a Mount Everest right at the base camp. That's not the point, is it? The point of getting to base camp is to one day scale the mountain so that you can go up because all the glory is up here. Now, although there is gl glory, tremendous glory and salvation that we're talking about here today, the point is not to just get saved. That's not the point. The point is to climb the mountain because up here is Christ-likeness. And that is where all the choice fruit of God is in his Son. If you want to offer God anything in this world, anything of purpose, anything that brings God glory, you do it through his Son. You become like his son. You think like him. You act like him. You follow him. And so you and I not only have to come to base camp and get saved, we have to scale this mountain. And that's what the apostles and the disciples did. But I need us to understand something today. 
that maybe we didn't talk about and focus on enough last week because we ran out of time. One of the ways we change our perspective on climbing such a hard, difficult mountain is we understand where we came from. We were drowning in our sins. We were dead in our sins. And we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And now we're alive. We're saved. If you've trusted in Christ, your sins are forgiven. You have eternal hope. You're on your way to heaven. But now there's a huge mountain in front of you called Christ-likeness. And you've got to get up that mountain. Because that's God's will. That's God's will for our life. And that's why we're going to talk about Ephesians 2.10 some week. Because that's what that verse is all about. But we've got to get up that mountain. And that perspective helps us get up that mountain to go, man, I'm not dead. I'm not hopeless. I'm not facing the wrath of God anymore. I'm alive. Of course I can scale that mountain. Of course I want to scale that mountain. But here's another thing we need to focus on today. Jesus Christ does all the heavy lifting. All of it. Scaling up the mountain of Christianity is hard. It's painstaking. It costs you something. But can I scale Mount Everest? No, I can't. Can you scale to the summit of Christianity on your own? No, you can't. None of us can, none of us will. Guess who helps us do it? Christ Jesus himself. Jesus said this phrase in Matthew 11, and I believe it. Now that I've been following Jesus for dozens of years, I, I believe what he says. He says, my yoke is easy. Yoke is something you would put around oxen when you were tilling the land and the oxen would do all the hard work. They'd plow the field for you and the yoke is, is the thing that you would put around these oxen. Jesus says, I have a yoke for you, but it's easy, yoke. I have a burden for you, but it's a light burden. How is it easy? You're asking me to climb up the summit of Christianity, a really tall precipice, yes, but in comparison to where you were headed. My yoke is easy. Comparison to the old Mosaic law, if you know anything about that, 613 commandments, and you better keep them all. My burden is light. And not only that, but I will be with you every step of the way. I will guide you, I will protect you, I will keep you, I will watch over you. Every step foot I took, I will ask you to take, and I will make sure that you get up this mountain. So really, all you need to do, and it's very simple, is follow Jesus. If he says do something, do it. If he says don't do something, don't do it. If he says go, go. If he says stop, stop. And you will find yourself scaling a mountain you never once could ever imagine you would ever get up. And I believe there's some in this room who are somewhere on that mountain, becoming more and more like Christ the more steps we take. And where did it all begin? Dead in our sins, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And now somehow, by some way, by God's grace, we're becoming like Jesus. Guys, that's remarkable. That's unbelievable. And that's where God is taking us. And that's why we need to look at this contrast again. Because it says in the same Bible, these two phrases, that say, that they say the same thing, but they just say it in different ways. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, is that flattering? No, it's not. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot please God. You cannot glorify God. You cannot do the will of God apart from Jesus. You're like a dead, dry branch. But guess what happens when that dead, dry branch gets connected to the true vine? Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And do you know where he wrote that? From a dungeon. Suffering simply because he told people the good news of Jesus Christ. Poorly clothed, poorly fed, no bathrooms, forgotten about in a dungeon. And Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can get up any mountain. If he's with me, if I'm alive in him, if he goes before me, I can do all things. And that's why I say today, as Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And there is a condition. You're not going to be dragged along kicking and screaming up that mountain, okay? You must be a willing participant of that. You must believe. But if you believe, your sins are forgiven. You have full righteousness in God. And you're on your way to the kingdom of God. And so here's our simple application that you can take home. This is our therefore as we close today. Number one, believe in Jesus. It's that simple. It's, it's simple on purpose so a child can receive it. 
that he is the only savior of the world. He's not a savior. He's not a way. He's not one method out of many. He is the only savior of the world and believe in him because that's why he came to give us his testimony. Number two, repent and follow Jesus. I told you I'm not good at directions, um, but one thing I do understand because I've been told a lot by my own GPS, make a U-turn. You dummy. I got mine to program to say that because I need to. Um, repentance and following Jesus is basically making a U-turn. We were once headed down here following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air in our sin. And once we believe in Jesus, Jesus says, turn around. Turn around and start following me now. I'm going the right way. I'm going up the mountain. Follow me. And once you do that, and we'll talk about this here down the road, maybe as soon as next week, stay near the life giver. Don't leave him. Don't drift. Uh, who was I talking about earlier? Who, was it uh, Lisa? She said she was uh, hiking the one day and got off the trail. Anyone ever done that? Got off the trail while hiking? We know you have. Sorry, Lisa. Didn't mean to make you an example there. But what happens when you get off the trail? It gets scary immediately, doesn't it? Because you don't know where you're going. Abide in Jesus. He's the only one that knows where he's going. Believe in him, repent and follow him, and abide in Jesus. I don't know where you are today, spiritually speaking. But I know that I had to come to terms with that as a 26-year-old man. I was going the opposite direction that I needed to go. I needed to believe. I needed to turn around. And I needed to stay near my life giver. That is the application today, if you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it boils down to what I'm going to continue to say over and over here, that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is everything. Jesus gave us everything. Therefore, Jesus is worthy of our everything. Do you believe that? Do you believe you have nothing without him? Do you believe that he bled and died to give you everything by him losing everything? And therefore, do you believe that he's worthy of your everything? Because that's Christianity in a nutshell. If I could speak one lesson about the Christianity, that would be it. Jesus, from beginning to last, from top to bottom, the Alpha and the Omega. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. I hope it's been a blessing to your soul. Would you bow in prayer for me, with me today? Father, we thank you. It's hard to even know how to put it into words, but we are thankful for what you've done on our behalf. I believe that I was dead and headed to a very scary destination. But Father, because of what your son has done and continues to do on my behalf, Father, I'm alive today. And that's the only reason I'm alive today. And I thank you for that message today. I thank you that I have the privilege to teach that message to here, to these people here. And I don't know their souls. I don't know where they're at. But I leave these souls in your hands knowing that you will do the, the hard work in their soul to realize to them that they need to believe, repent, follow Jesus, and abide in Jesus. And wherever they are in this journey, Father, I pray that you'd show them how beautiful, how powerful, how magnificent, how worthwhile this Jesus is and that we would follow him for the rest of our lives because he's worthy of it. Thank you for the privilege of the good news. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.